welcome to Music for Life, enhancing the Armstrong concert experience. I'm your host, Ryan Malone. In today's episode, we explore some of the great interview moments from the first season of our program, as usually featured in a segment I called Backstage Banter. Armstrong Auditorium has hosted a variety of immense talents from all over the world, some of whom were interviewed for various episodes of Music for Life. This has allowed us to feature talks with some of the greatest musical personalities on the concert circuit today, from instrumentalists in the local Philharmonic to internationally renowned artists such as conductor Gerard Schwartz, violinist Joshua Bell, and cellist Sarah Sant'Ambrosio, among many, many more. Today, we will feature the best moments of those interviews, great words of artistic wisdom from these experts, plus a few stirring musical examples to listen to from the repertoire known for their difficulty level. So stick around for the best of backstage banter today on Music for Life. We are well into our third season of Music for Life. This season, I have geared the shows toward discussing components of music history that will have direct payoff at the Armstrong Auditorium concerts of this season, hence our show's tagline, Enhancing the Armstrong Concert Experience. The pieces discussed are the specific ones to be performed on our stage. But by doing so, we are also gathering useful information about music history as a whole, some great principles of how to appreciate fine art music, no matter what the specific piece. For our first two seasons, we showed how to appreciate and be enriched by fine art music by taking a slightly different approach. In those seasons, I chose a particular theme for each episode, one that was prevalent throughout music history. We listened to examples of pieces that fit into that theme, and the examples spanned music history, from the so-called Baroque era to the 20th or 21st centuries. We also had recurring segments that helped us explore our theme from different angles. Back in the first season only, when the show was twice as long as it is now, two hours, We also had a segment called Backstage Banter, where I interviewed performers on the concert circuit today for their perspectives on music, and usually the discussions revolved specifically around the theme of that episode. Interviewing over two dozen accomplished musicians added a powerful component to the show. Several of these names were acquired because they were here at Armstrong Auditorium already, having either just performed or preparing to perform on our stage. It's something I thought worth reminiscing on here today and condensing, since it's hard to go back and and listen to all those two-hour episodes and get those interviews in that way. So I'm condensing them for you here. Now, just so that our episode isn't all talk, I do want to play some musical examples to intersperse between these interviews. The theme I've chosen for the pieces we'll hear will be similar to those I played in an episode called Music for Virtuosity, where we explored music written to showcase the highest level of performance achievement. That seems fitting to showcase in an episode like this, where we'll be hearing from some of music's foremost experts. And so that these examples aren't just a repeat of ones we heard in that Music for Virtuosity episode. I plan to play pieces I didn't have time to get to in that other episode. Let's start with one of those examples. In that episode on virtuosity, we heard two examples from the Baroque era first. Now, in the Baroque era, virtuosity was required of its performers. To demonstrate this on that episode, I played two examples. One was from the operatic tradition. After that, I played a portion of an organ work that was known for its technical demands, J.S. Bach's famous Toccata and Fugue in D minor. 
A toccata is considered a virtuosic piece of music that possesses an improvisatory feel. Now, in the Baroque era, toccatas usually contained fast-moving runs, unsteady rhythms and harmonies, full chords, and polyphonic passages, clearly designed to demonstrate the ability of the performer. After playing Bach's most famous example of this kind of piece, I mentioned that composers were still writing toccatas in the 20th century, and I only had time to play an incredibly short snippet of a toccata by Claude Debussy and a toccata by Maurice Ravel. Let's hear the latter of those two in its entirety. Toccatas aren't usually that long anyway, and this one comes from a suite called Le Tombeau de Couperin. Here it is performed by pianist Alexander Schimpf.
That was an example of a virtuosic piece of music that I referenced on a show back in season one, but didn't have time to play in its entirety. It was the Toccata movement from Maurice Ravel's piano suite called Le Tombeau de Couperin. The Toccata has been a flashy piece of music to show off the skill of a performer written since the Baroque era, but also a genre still being employed by composers today. Not only are we exploring some of the most highly demanding musical compositions, we are juxtaposing them with interviews we've had on this program before. This episode is like a greatest hits of Music for Life's interview component. As mentioned earlier, our shows were theme-based in the first two seasons, and when the first season contained this interview element, we talked with the artists about things that related directly to the show's main theme. In that first season, I was trying to introduce our listeners to the basic families of instruments, and to delve into that theme further, I usually interviewed members of the local symphonic organization here, the Oklahoma City Philharmonic, to discuss their instruments. To kick off the Backstage Banter segment, our very first guest was, in fact, the conductor and music director of the Oklahoma City Philharmonic, Joel Levine. We talked with him in the episode where I introduced our listeners to an overview of the orchestra and the great repertoire that showed the development of this ensemble over the course of standard music history. Maestro Levine and I talked about a number of topics, but what stands out from this interview is when we talked about the function of a conductor, what his job is. The most important work is done in rehearsals, because we get four. It's an amazingly fast, intense process, so we assume they come prepared, and they know how the piece goes. The question is going to be, how are we as a group going to unify our approach? Because everyone will have their own favorite recording or their own favorite version. They'll have a sound in their ear as to, as to what they're hearing. My job, in very quick fashion, is to unify it. I very quickly put things in order. That's what it's about. It's, it's, it's coming to the same vision of how the piece works. And, and by that I mean in big chunks and in small chunks. The trees, as in very micro details, this note is out of tune, this chord is out of tune, this moment, this second is out of tune. Later on, we look at bigger and bigger chunks. So we start with trees, and then we work toward the forest. So that was from an interview, our program's very first one, in fact, with maestro Joel Levine of the Oklahoma City Philharmonic. His interview was part of a two-hour program that introduced our listeners to the concept of the orchestra and its development throughout standard music history. I ended up interviewing several musicians from the Philharmonic as we explored different families of instruments. In our Plucked String episode, I interviewed the principal harpist from the Oklahoma City Philharmonic, Gay LeBlanc. In our Music with Horns episode, I interviewed principal trumpeter Dr. Carl Seavers. In our Good Reads episode, I interviewed an oboist from the Philharmonic, David Price, who talked about the reed-making process for his instrument, as well as lessons from his many years teaching band in the public school system. Here are some brief highlights from those interviews. First, harpist Gayla Blanc talking about the harp's function in the orchestra and ending with her favorite harp joke. Um, the harp is mostly color. It's a color instrument. We're back by the percussion for reasons. We often play with a glockenspiel or xylophone. And various color sounds like glisses. This would be a gliss if I do. Or that kind of sound can add quite a nice flourish. Sometimes I think our purpose is often to accompany the winds. We'll play maybe arpeggios, you know, you know things like... Kind of thing, maybe chords to accompany a wood uh, oboe or flutist. 
that's kind of our role, I would say, color or accompaniment. You, you have any harp jokes? Probably the one that most harpists hear is that we spend 50% of our life tuning and the other 50% out of tune. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's the one that I get quite a bit, and I feel that way. I feel like I'm constantly tuning this instrument that has all of these you know, natural fibers, and it's never quite perfect. But that's the challenge, and that's, that's what keeps me going. David Price talked about the common practice of oboists making their own reeds. And there are some professionals, especially studio oboe players, that buy the reeds. Hmm. They have someone that makes them how they like them. Right. But you make your own. I make my own. And you would say that's probably the norm among most oh, yeah. symphonic oboe oh, players. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Everybody in the Philharmonic makes their own. And the thing is, no one can really play anybody else's reed. Because hmm. over the years, I've scraped on reeds, and I've done this to it and done that to it, and I go, that fits me. And it's probably because of my physical makeup, huh. you know, uh, the, the, the muscle strength that's in my jaw, my lung strength, you know, how I play the oboe, how I actually blow, and my lips, right. you know. It takes 16 pounds of air pressure to play the oboe. The same wow. amount that it takes to play a trumpet. They're also used to taking too much reed in. The oboe reed is the only reed that you don't play putting in your mouth. The tip goes between your lips. And you have just enough that's peeking through on the inside that you can articulate it with your tongue. Okay. All the other reeds actually go in your mouth. The clarinet, the saxophone, the bassoon. Oboe players are kind of funny, you know, about their reeds and stuff. They keep them close to their chest, you might say. <laughs> and here's a little from Dr. Seavers, trumpet professor at the University of Oklahoma and principal trumpeter in the Oklahoma City Philharmonic. He talked about how skilled a principal trumpet player of an orchestra has to be. Trumpet players are caricatured as egotistical, higher, louder, faster, and, and there's probably a lot of truth to those <laughs> generalities. But I've often thought you earn your money as a symphony player on those touchy, quiet entrances where you've sat there for 300 measures and come in in an awkward range, and, and your success is if nobody notices you. You know, you have to sneak in and play with a lot of finesse. That, quite frankly, that's very tough. But we try to prepare for that and stay engaged. And, you know, the, the good trumpet players just have to prepare a lot. It's so physical and subtle. And it's tough. It's demanding. And, and you're a solo voice. So every iota of sound you make, everybody knows. It, you know, us, the first horn, oboe, and piccolo flute. You know, all the instruments are difficult and present their challenges. But if the oboe player, the piccolo, or the first trumpet player flirts an entrance, Everybody in the building knows, so it it's, can be a bit of pressure. So those were some interviews with members of the Oklahoma City Philharmonic as we discussed aspects of each instrument family. These are all archived at kpcg.fm and can also be found at SoundCloud and iTunes. Many of my interviews were conducted with other local musicians, though perhaps less well-known on an international scale, no less expert in their field. I interviewed members of the Bright Music Chamber Society, most of whom play in the Philharmonic. I interviewed my colleagues here at Herbert W. Armstrong College, both of whom teach here and perform somewhat frequently on the Armstrong concert stage. 
Other local greats interviewed were flutist Natalie Searing, an adjunct faculty member here at Armstrong College who is known for her work on the Baroque flute. We talked with percussionist Jamar Potit, who gave us a tour of the modern drum kit in an episode about rhythm and percussion. We talked with Kyle Dillingham and Peter Marcus from the internationally acclaimed folk band Horseshoe Road, musicians trained in both folk and classical styles and how they blend the two in their performances. And in an episode about the Celtic influence on fine art music, I interviewed a local bagpipe virtuoso, Bruce Robertson, about the anatomy of this instrument, as well as what every listener should know about the art of piping. I want to play you some of the great moments of these interviews from these local legends. First, here is the discussion we had with Chad Burrow and Dr. Amy Chang, artistic directors of the Bright Music Chamber Society, about how small ensembles make decisions about how to balance the sound within the group. You know, it's very apparent most of the time who has the main theme or how the fragments is passed uh, amongst people. And then you have to listen. Listen to each other. Also, sometimes if it's not completely clear, uh, if someone has a strong opinion on something, obviously there's there's a process involved in coming to a consensus, but sometimes there's uh, the perspective of sitting in the ensemble, too. You have um, a, a different feeling of who needs to be louder or softer. Um, if you're in front of the piano and playing the cello, for example, you might feel the pianist is too loud at times. Or that the, the clarinetist may feel that, you know, that, you know, the piano is too loud. Or someone may feel the clarinetist is too loud. But at the same time, it's something you have to rehearse and maybe, you know, someone in the group has to say, hey, we're covering uh, the important line at this moment. And so it's experience mixed with really being listening constantly and also knowing exactly the kind of music you have. Is it something that's homophonic and melody and accompaniment or, as you mentioned, polyphonic and really being able to, to hear the difference. And so you have to really be adaptable uh, in every moment. Natalie Searing brought in a metallic modern flute and a wooden Baroque flute and talked with us about the differences between the two and what the purpose of playing on ancient instruments is. Is because you're trying to do this on an instrument that would have been more... Historically correct, you could say, or historically accurate. Yes, I think that's becoming even more and more important nowadays. It's all about having historically informed performances. We're trying to play things as close to what we think the composer would have wanted. Right. So stylistically, but also, you know, using a, a Baroque instrument, you're, you're creating the sound. Right. it is a very, very different sound. It's a historical reenactment. Yes. From a musical uh-huh. vantage point. That, that's right. As best as we know it. And again, all these interviews are archived at kpcg.fm, on SoundCloud, and iTunes. And that one can be found in the Flute Family episode if you want to hear Natalie demonstrate the difference between the Baroque and modern flutes. We heard from my wife Paula Malone in episode 8 on the human instrument and in episode 11 about music and language. In the episode about the human voice, she talked about the wide variety of voice types being featured in the vocal music of the standard repertoire, particularly in opera, and tips for the listener to enjoy those voices even more. Every performer wants to make an emotional contact with their audience. Yes, you're singing in a language you don't understand, possibly, but... The composer wrote these beautiful melodies over these 
gut-wrenching harmonies sometimes, and it's, it's very, it's meant to speak to human emotion. And so don't be afraid of that. Let them take you on a roller coaster ride. That's really what it's about, is, is just experience the highs and lows of the music itself. Another colleague of mine, Mark Jenkins, spoke with us about why Bach is so valuable to a pianist's learning process. When we play the piano, what we're really learning is to make the right motion with our hands. One problem that a lot of pianists have is making the same motion with both hands all the time. And if you're playing a piece of Chopin and you're doing that, you can get away with that in the easier pieces and not notice it the same way that you will when you get to harder pieces and cannot play them. But even in a very easy piece of Bach, because the two hands are doing different things, you have to learn to cut that invisible ribbon between them. You have to learn to make a separate motion that is not connected at all. And that's a skill that transfers over to everything else that you play. That season, Mr. Jenkins had a jazz concert on the Armstrong Auditorium stage. Playing the drum kit for that event was local drummer Jamar Poteet, who gave a fascinating tour of this versatile device known as the drum kit. Here's a brief moment from that. Starting with the kick. And the kick is basically what we call the bass drum or the kick drum. The bass drum, drum, the kick drum. Uh As far as in the jazz realm, when they started using the kick drum, back then, 30s, 40s, upright basses weren't amplified. So kick drum would always be used to kind of amplify that sound across the big band. So they'd constantly, you know, have that thing going. So it's just a constant underlining pulse with that walking bass line. So it kind of reinforces that. Now when you use a kick, it's more of a accent or a punctuation on a hit, as far as in jazz. The toms, they came from kind of the Native Americans that were here in North America, and then the African drums that were there on, on, the, on the continent of Africa. They just kind of integrated all this into the kit. Uh, snare drum came from the European style, all the classical stuff that was already going on. So, mm-hmm. so all this stuff is kind of mashed into one, which is why I love drum set, because you're, you're able to function as a musician, as a percussionist, and not just a drummer. And you're playing multiple layers at one time, so really, it's really a challenge, but it, it's fun. In an episode about the Celtic influence on fine art music, an internationally acclaimed local bagpiper came out to our studios and talked about what people should like about the bagpipe and what's actually wrong with the sound if people don't like it. If you hear a really well-tuned bagpipe, you go, wow, that's not what I thought about a bagpipe, mm. you know, because mm-hmm. it can be a harsh instrument and not tuned properly, it can be extremely harsh. If it doesn't sound good, it's probably not being played properly. You know, <laughs> how about that? Because I could tune up my bagpipes and I can show you an out of tune bagpipe. And even as nice of an instrument as mine is, I can make it sound bad, mm-hmm. you know. And I can do it by blowing, I can do it by just by tuning my drones out of tune. And it takes a lot of years, and I mean years and years and years, of playing your instrument, refining your instrument getting proper teaching until you can really set up a bagpipe. So that's it. If you hear something that sounds kind of wanky or if you think about the uh, old Bugs Bunny cartoon when they played the bagpipes and it sounded like that, then it's probably not being played properly because an in-tune bagpipe, it gives you so much. It can be a really sweet instrument, even, even the Great Highland bagpipe. In an interview with Horseshoe Rhodes, Kyle Dillingham, and Peter Marcus each talked about the influence their classical training had on their folk playing and vice versa. I started at such a young age and learned the oral tradition, which in our public schools 
so many of our students start when they're 11, and it's possible to mm -hmm. learn to play by ear. Of course it's possible, mm -hmm. but it's much more challenging to learn a language the older you get. Right. And so to say that I, the classical has an influence on my folk or vice versa, I think out of anything, um, the, the folk training and the oral, oral training that I've had, if I sit in an orchestra and play violin, it's such a benefit because my ears, I hear something and can play it. Mm. I hear the flute. Oh, the flutes have my part, and I just play along with them. So I don't have to be a great reader at music. I, I do have to be a good reader. Yes, right. Um, you are. And, and, and I, yeah. <laughs> but just on I, top, it compounds it. it. Yes, that's a great way to describe it. It compounds it to say that, you know, I'm reading my music but being reinforced and really opening up and listening and being very sensitive to all the other musicians. That was Peter Marcus on the subject, and here's violinist Kyle Dillingham. Where my training as sort of a folk player, oftentimes you're having to really punch through and cut through acoustically. And uh, bringing that into a concert hall, I think it's lent itself to maybe just a, an exciting performance that seems a little more spontaneous. In mm -hmm. fact, I had a good friend that attended this very first concert that Peter was talking about with the Edmund North Orchestra, where I premiered Normandy. And I said, what did you think of the piece? Uh, somebody had been hearing me play for a long time, and he said, that's wonderful. He said, you were improvising the whole thing, right? He, he had taken it as that my part, maybe Callan had composed for the orchestra, but I was simply improvising my part and doing whatever. And I said, no, I mean, every single note is written out. But I think because I've had so many years of, of performance in a venue where there isn't written score, that even when I've memorized a piece, it comes across as though I'm maybe just the way I'm playing, that it right. seems improvised, it seems fresh, it seems new. Right. So that was an array of highlights from interviews I conducted with performers from our community right here in central Oklahoma, colleagues and neighbors of mine whom I would call local legends. I want to play one more component of that Kyle Dillingham interview. I played this in our Music for Virtuosity episode. These are Kyle's thoughts about how the concept of virtuosity has changed for violinists over the years. Um, we have a very homogenized image um, of a virtuoso these days. It's, it's a very specific thing. It's somebody who's playing every note perfectly. The tone is even all the way across, and it's, there's no flaws. And, you know, it, it comes by way of competitions to, to reach a standard and mm -hmm. studying with this professor and then going here. And I think that if you look back historically, uh, virtuosos were, the idea of virtuosity was different, a different thing. They were often great improvisers. Mm -hmm. They were, I, I always imagined that the performances were, were much more... Um, apt to something going wrong, you right. know, a little bit more on the edge. Uh, it wasn't the recording culture. It wasn't the recording culture. <laughs> I had somebody, I met this this concert pianist, uh, said, I saw this poster of, uh, it was advertising a Paganini concert in England back, you know, early part of last century, and he said, it was interesting, it said, at the end of the concert, Paganini will be making, imitating sounds of different barnyard animals. <laughs> And it made you think. What would his, what was his performance actually like? Was right. it was it what we what we try to uh, try to emulate or what we've tried to um, to reproduce? And I I think it's probably not. I'm thinking that his performance was sure fantastic and a master. But I wonder if it had an edge that doesn't exist these days so often. 
He referenced the most famous violinist of that time period, one so skilled that people thought he may have made a deal with the devil, (laughs) Niccolo Paganini. Let's pause for another musical example here, something we've not played on this program before, a violin piece composed by Paganini. I want to play you the first of his 24 caprices, insanely difficult violin works. And you'll hear how insanely difficult these are right away in this first one. This is a recording by violinist Itzhak Perlman. are listening to Music for Life. I'm your host, Ryan Malone. This is KPCG. In today's episode, we are exploring some of the great interview moments from the first season of our program, as usually featured in a segment I called Backstage Banter. I wanted to condense those in today's episode and share all these amazing morsels of artistic wisdom. I'm excited to review all these here. After all, during our first season, each episode was two hours. So if you missed one, that was a big time commitment to catch up. Also, all these interviews were scattered throughout the season, so I think it's great we can just condense them right here. And for musical examples today, I'm also playing a few stirring selections from the repertoire known for their difficulty level. We just heard Paganini's first caprice from the set of 24 caprices in a recording by Itzhak Perlman. And that was following up on a portion of interviews we held with performers based right here in the Oklahoma City metro area. Another musician I interviewed, though not a professional per se, at the time of the interview, was a then 15-year-old trumpeter and founder of a nonprofit organization, the function of which she explained quite eloquently. Her name is Katie Pryor. We are a service organization for high school trumpet players who volunteer to use their musical gifts to serve the veteran community. So our main project is volunteering to sound taps at veterans' funerals because with over 1,500 veteran funerals a day, there are not enough military buglers to attend every funeral. So most veterans receive an audio recording. So how did the organization come about? What sparked the idea to start this? Well, to go way back, when I was first learning to play the trumpet when I was nine, my great-grandfather, who was a World War II veteran, was in hospice care. And my family talked about how great it would be if I could sound taps at his funeral. However, he passed away before I could learn the notes, so I didn't get to play taps for him. 
So five mm-hmm. years later, when I heard that most veterans received the audio recording, I was really inspired to do something about it because I'd been playing for a lot longer. I could play taps now, and I know a lot of trumpet players that could help me. So mm-hmm. it's such an emotional moment. And being there when you are playing that last salute for that veteran, it's an amazing experience, but it's also, it's really emotional. The backstage banter segment of our program didn't just interview musicians who were exclusively performers. We also talked with other music professionals, a luthier from about 100 miles from here, an Oklahoma City-based piano technician, and a music therapist based right here in central Oklahoma. The luthier was Lou Lynch of the Tulsa Violin Shop, one of our area's most demanded luthiers. The music therapist we interviewed was Amber Loomis of the Zeta Music Therapy Clinic in Norman, Oklahoma. The piano technician we interviewed was Peter Krauss, the technician who preps the Steinways for the famous pianists who perform here in the region. Lou Lynch was talking to us in an episode about the string instrument grouping of the orchestra, an episode I called The Fiddle Family. He was telling us about his job of doing what's called setup for these types of instruments. My strengths are in setting instruments up, and part of that is a player realizing that there has to be a dialogue. It's not just the the bench person dictating what he thinks it should be, because you've got to be flexible and and, uh, sort of shape the, the sound based on what the player is looking for. If the bridge is a little bit heavy and you're looking for a little darker sound, you can you can sometimes remove some of that wood in certain places and, and change that sound. Wow. Uh, changing one string sometimes can change the sound of an instrument because it's all a, a balance. Music therapist Amber Loomis was talking to us in an episode about the health properties of music. She summarized the scientific research supporting the importance of music therapy. Music therapy has been found to help reduce pain, to improve respiration, lower blood pressure, improve cardiac output, reduce heart rate and reduce muscle tension, provide visual imagery and condition a relaxation response, and it's been found to change mood and focus on positive thoughts and feelings. In mental health, music therapy has been found to improve social interactions, improve concentration and attention span, And it's been found to assist in resolving conflicts and lead to a stronger family and peer relationships. And with older adults, it's found to reduce depression, enhance social-emotional skills, assess cognitive ability. It's found to decrease uh, agitated and aggressive behaviors for individuals diagnosed with Alzheimer's. The individuals in late stages of dementia that might not respond to other stimuli will respond and interact with music, which I think is pretty amazing. And one of the reasons that that is is because it uses so one of the few things that we do that uses the entire area of our brain. So if there are certain areas that might be damaged due to disease or traumatic brain injury, we can use music to sort of access other areas and reroute and sort of try to get to some of those same thoughts and feelings that we didn't necessarily have access to without that. Piano technician Peter Krause was our guest in a program about the math involved in what makes things in tune or harmonious. He talked about the importance of his job in the concert world, even though he might never be seen by the audience. When you find that sweet spot, the, the tonal character of the, of the sound changes into something else. It changes into something transcendent. It makes the hair stand up on the back of my neck when I find it. At that point, the piano technician becomes a co-performer, even though the audience never sees me. 
It feels like a performance in every way except that I'm not actually physically walking out on the stage. Some of the interviews I held were not part of the backstage banter segment, but our classroom corner segment, where, again, we explored different methods and curricula for introducing young people to music. Our interview with Katie Pryor was an example of one of those. I want to play some snippets from those interviews here today as well, though I do plan to highlight different parts of those classroom corner interviews when I do a best of classroom corner episode. The same episode when we heard from piano technician Peter Krauss, we also heard from a musician and math professor, Dr. David Kung, known for his class in the Great Courses series on the connections between math and music. People are really surprised. I think you're right. The, they see rhythm. That's where they see fractions explicitly, and they think that that's the big connection. And to me, that's not the most important connection. The, the important connection to me is sort of it has to be in your brain. It has to be the fact that both math and music are based on, on patterns. The connections are a lot more than just that. The entire musical experience has a mathematical component. So when you start, you know, the musical experience starts with some vibrating object, whether it's vocal cords or an instrument or something like that, and that has a mathematical component. And then you can understand the overtones of that note. You can put notes together so that the overtones sound good with either chords or, or scales. And then you can start composing music based on those. And some compositions have a very mathematical flavor, including Bach, which has, uh, he did some things that we would now call group theory. And we do things that mathematically weren't discovered until years later. And you go through compositions. And finally, this, this is probably my favorite, is just that the delivery of music in this day and age, which is almost always digital now, has a lot of mathematics backing up under that. So... At every stage of the musical experience, there's, there's mathematics hiding there. Also in a classroom corner in the Plucked String episode, the episode where I talked with harpist Gay LeBlanc, I was able to interview via Skype one of the members of the world-renowned Romero Guitar Quartet, which holds an annual guitar institute each summer right here in central Oklahoma. The technique is, of course, the Romero family. We have a, a, a reputation, you know, a solid technique with the classical guitar. And a proven technique... You know, my grandfather never had any arthritis, never any problems with movement of the fingers. So we do have that, you know, it's kind of like you think of Mario Andretti's family with race cars, Romero family with a guitar. That was Celino Romero from the Romero Guitar Quartet talking about his family's guitar institute and what they focus on in terms of curriculum at this annual event. This made up the Classroom Corner segment of an episode about plucked string instruments. Our most listened-to discussion, also in a classroom corner segment, was not an interview in the traditional sense, but we had the famous violinist Joshua Bell talk to our students one afternoon while he was here for his recital at Armstrong Auditorium. He spoke in a Q&A type format, and I asked the first question about practice tips and techniques. I'll showcase more of this on our Best of Classroom Corner segment, but here's a brief snippet from some things he said about his practice priorities. I definitely work quite a bit, but I've never been one that felt the need to practice or the desire to practice, you know, 10 hours a day and lock myself in a room. As a kid, I I was into a lot of other things. You know, I was into sports, I was into, you know, uh, school, um, even video games as a teenager, you know. So I, I was juggling a lot of things. I'm sure a lot of you... It's, have your homework and have your other interests and it's hard to find time to practice so for me it's always been about quality of time rather than amount of time 
Again, we were able to hear from Joshua Bell because he was in town to perform at Armstrong Auditorium. I was also able to sit down one-on-one -on -one and interview several great performers this way because they were here to perform. This list includes conductor Gerard Schwartz, music director Jesus Guzman from the world's premier mariachi ensemble, bandmaster Mike Robinson of Britain's Band of Royal Marines, Grammy-winning cellist Sarah Santambrosio, and internationally acclaimed pianist Marcin Koziak. Gerard Schwartz talked about a number of things, including his history with our organization's predecessor, the Ambassador International Cultural Foundation and the Ambassador Auditorium in Pasadena. And we said, you know, wouldn't it be great to have the orchestra in residence here? Of course, the hall was the church, but it was also a concert hall. Right. So they, they, did, uh, they did both. And as a concert hall, it's nice to have a resident ensemble. So they brought it to the elders, and everybody thought it was a great idea. So we moved. My second year there in Los Angeles, we moved to Ambassador. We did everything there. We rehearsed there uh, in rehearsal room or on the stage. We had our offices there, and it was a phenomenal uh, experience for us. And I was there six more years, and all of our main concerts were at Ambassador Auditorium. Of course, Herbert W. Armstrong was instrumental in making sure that there was great culture happening. I mean, I went to a recital there of of uh, Pavarotti. I also went to a recital there of Vladimir Horowitz. And uh, Armstrong had a great love for music. He told me he had a big screen and he, in his home with, with speakers and he heard every concert that was going on if he, if he chose to. Mm. And when I walked in the door today, it just brought back all the wonderful memories. Mm. Beautiful hall, beautiful acoustics, pristine, beautifully maintained, warm colors. It gave me the same feeling that I had uh, all those years, and it brought back wonderful memories because I was, I was, you know, basically a youngster then. It actually feels better in Oklahoma, I'm sorry to say, than Pasadena. Uh, uh, Los Angeles was a different kind of place. I love Los Angeles, don't get me wrong. I lived in Pasadena when, when I was there. But this, it just seems like it's in the perfect setting for great culture and great art. So that was Gerard Schwartz talking about our namesake, Herbert W. Armstrong, and his ambassador auditorium in Pasadena. Grammy-winning cellist Sarah Santambrosio talked about how she draws inspiration from so many areas to inform and empower her artistic process, as well as how she teaches her son and others to do the same. I think as an artist, the moment that you stop being inspired by every single moment of your day is the moment that you stop growing. So for me, like every single thing that's happening to me at every moment, I'm looking at it and pulling from it something that inspires me to try to be greater. Off and on, I'll play in improv groups that are not classically based, mm -hmm. um, but I will pull classical elements into my improvisation, of course, and I find that every time I do that, I come back to particularly Baroque music, but also Latin music, with a whole fresh new idea of how, of ornamenting, and just of the aliveness of the music that it's a living, breathing thing. Even though it may have been written 200, 300 years ago, it's a living, breathing thing right this second. So I find that very, really helpful. Those are the kinds of things you're able to help your son with mm -hmm. as well, just helping him draw influences from just everything that you take in uh, right. culturally, artistically, just everyday life. And it's sort of, I think, your one's responsibility to do that, to become as great as one can be. You're given this vessel and... 
it is your responsibility to cherish it and to take care of it. And that means, you know, being healthy and not eating junk food all day. And, but it also means using every moment of your life to become greater and reflect the glory more intensely. My interview with mariachi music director Jesus Guzman, affectionately known as Chewy, was a unique experience. It was our first and only interview to date where we had a translator on hand. Chewy would speak mostly in Spanish and our on-staff translator, Carlos Heyer, interpreted for us. Always, always, I believe always there is something to learn when one is teaching. Right. All the time. All the time one is trying to perfect something. Bandmaster Mike Robinson of Britain's Band of Royal Marines gave incredible insight into what being in the military brings to his ensemble's music-making process. The military discipline makes you, you know, focus more, work really hard, and direct your energy wherever it may be. No matter what we do, I think it's the combination of the discipline and the music works so well together, but then whenever we requested to do anything else, be it military or, or aid-wise, because our guys are so focused and have that determination, they can turn their hand to anything quite easily. And we talked about what makes the piano such a great instrument of musical expression with Polish pianist Marcin Koziak. For sure, a lot of layers which I can paint by fingers, that's what I'm learning. You can play sometimes with four or five layers even, and that's, that's perfect because there are many instruments which have one line, yeah? And also, you know, the, the dimension of the dynamics from really from whispering to huge, large sound is also, I think, one of great things about the piano. You can really play Debussy like a wind in the leaves and you can play Rachmaninoff like something huge. Yeah. I was most recently featuring interviews I had with performers who were physically on site in Edmond, Oklahoma, as they were performing at Armstrong Auditorium around the time that I had the interview. But that season, I was also able to talk on the phone with performers who had been here in previous seasons, like mandolinist Avi Avital. He spoke to us in an episode about how the four seasons of the year inspired music compositions through throughout history, and he spoke specifically about how he infused new life into Vivaldi's summer in a recording that had just recently been released. The element that I was trying to capture is, I remember the first time I listened to Summer of Vivaldi, even though it was, it's a vague memory because I was a little kid, but it, it left a very huge impression on me, and I think that everyone can say that. I believe with interpreting on different instruments, with interpreting on a mandolin, playing it on a mandolin, I was trying to create to the audience that kind of feeling. Playing it with a different instrument, with a mandolin, allows it to hear it again with a very fresh ear and hopefully to discover it again with an unconditioned ear. This is something that, that was repeated that I heard from many people that for them it was rediscovering the piece, and this is, I guess, the most amazing compliment I could have wished for. Given the number of respectable guests we had interviewed by that point in Music for Life, I was also able to contact other music professionals who had never been here, but conduct interviews with them that pertain to a specific themed show. In one of those cases, I contacted Dr. Donald Krudzma. He's not a concert musician, but a scientist who has extensively studied birdsong, the foremost expert in the field, in fact. 
I was able to interview him on a program about how birds have inspired composers to imitate them in their works. Our ears aren't fair to the birds for uh, what they're actually producing. But like you said, you have these sonograms, which to me as a musician, I'm looking on your website and seeing, wow, that looks a lot like a staff. And here are the pitches of the staff. That certainly helps us to put in concrete terms what they're doing. Yeah, the, the, all these sonograms, the ability to see what these birds are doing. You can read a human musical score, but I can't. But I look at these sonograms and I just see extraordinary things that are going on. You know, deep down, we like to think there's some universal aspect to human music and what birds do. We apply, as you pointed out at the beginning, we apply all these human musical terms to, to what birds are doing. Birds sing, and the very word sing uh, pretty much says it all. Given the illustrious guests we had had on the program to that point, I was able to contact prominent personalities like Dr. Kruzma and invite them to speak on our program. I also did the same with a highly well-known choral composer of our day, Eric Whitaker. It's difficult for me to sometimes communicate large emotional and structural ideas that I have, that I feel, through words. But somehow music offers this very dense, graceful, pure language that somehow remains intact, that I write it a certain way and then others hear it or perform it. And there seems to be most, if not all, of the information transferring from one person to another. Music is a language that just, it just works. What I'm hoping to do is to write the notes in the right combination so that it creates a sense of community, a communal experience, so that these singers, it's not that they're, they're all feeling the same thing at the same time, but that everyone has a shared intention. And so my goal as a composer is to find, like I said, the right combination of words and notes so that when everyone breathes together, this other thing comes to life, this thing that's bigger than each of the individuals in the choir. And I, I never get tired of that moment standing in front of a group where I'm in the right place, they're in the right place. We take that breath together and Boom, it's just, it, for me, it's everything. It's, it sums up the whole game. And by the, the whole game, I mean really life in general. And I think it's why I'm drawn endlessly to choral music, because there's moment after moment of transcendence. You are listening to Music for Life. I'm your host, Ryan Malone. This is KPCG. In today's episode, we have explored some of the great interview moments from the first season of our program. I wanted to condense those in today's episode and share all these amazing morsels of artistic wisdom and understanding about music. We just heard some of an interview I held with the famous Eric Whitaker, a choral composer probably best known for his work with the virtual choirs, sometimes called the YouTube choirs. I have also promised a few stirring musical examples to listen to from the repertoire known for their difficulty level. So to close today's program, let's end with another virtuosic music example. In the earlier episode, Music for Virtuosity, I played the last half of the last movement of the hardest concerto for piano and orchestra by Sergei Rachmaninoff, his piano concerto number three in D minor. Let's close today's program with the first movement of this. This is from a recording of Andrew Lytton conducting the Dallas Symphony Orchestra with pianist Stephen Huff.
You have been listening to Music for Life, a production of KPCG 101.3 on the FM dial in Edmond, Oklahoma. From the Herbert W. Armstrong College campus, I'm Ryan Malone. Thanks for joining me. Thank you.